Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all on this big screen here in front of me. Um, I would imagine quite a lot of you will have been aware of uh, the news recently about a Zoom meeting that uh, went viral on social media. Uh, there was a very, uh, in this Zoom meeting, there was a very heated exchange among members of a, a local parish council over the issue of who had authority. As a result of that, the phrase, you have no authority here, Jackie Weaver, has entered the English language, possibly for good. 20 years from now, people will be saying that to each other and they won't have a clue how it came about. Anyway, the stories that we've been looking at over these last few weeks in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew's Gospel are all about who has authority, specifically the authority of Jesus, his right to speak and to act in the way that he did. And this, unlike Caleb's X-rated talk last week, our story this morning has been certified as suitable for family viewing. We find it in Matthew 9, uh, verses 1 to 8, and it demonstrates Jesus' authority to deal with the thing that is at the root of all our troubles. Rather than read it, um, I'm, I'm just going to tell you the story this morning. Uh, it centers on the healing of a paralyzed man <clears throat> who is brought to Jesus by a group of his friends. One of the details that Matthew skips over, which we find in both Mark and Luke's account, is that the guys who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus don't come in through the door. Here's what happens. Picture the scene. Jesus is back in Capernaum, his home base at the, at the top end, the north end of the Lake of Galilee. He's teaching there. The house is crowded with people. They are spilling out the door, and a bunch of guys turn up carrying their friend who is paralyzed. There is no way that they can push through the crowd to get their friend to Jesus. So one of them, there's always one, says, hey, let's climb up on the roof and make a hole and lure him in. So a few minutes later, dirt and debris are beginning to fall on the people down below in the house. Everyone's looking up to see what's happening. Light shines through from the ceiling. And I imagine Jesus watching in amusement as this paralyzed man is lured down in front of him. It's like he then turns to the man and looks him in the eye and says, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. These are among the most wonderful words that any of us could ever hear. And they go right to the root of our trouble. But these words that bring healing to one man's soul are deeply offensive to others who are there. That day, Among the crowd are some teachers of the law. They're the religious experts of the day, and they're thinking to themselves, he can't say that. That's blasphemy. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And you know what? They were right. Ultimately, all sin is against God, so only he can forgive sin. You and I are called to forgive those who sin against us, and for our own sake, it's vital that we do, but we forgive the person, not the sin. 
We let go of our desire to make them pay. We, we no longer hold it against them. But that doesn't mean that what they did is okay. Because only God can say that. Only God has the, the authority to forgive sin. So these religious leaders are offended. Who does this guy, Jesus, think he is? And, and anyway, it's easy enough to tell someone that their sins are forgiven. Anyone can do that. Now, Jesus knows what they are thinking. And so he asks them, okay, what's easier to, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But here's what I'll do to prove to you that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he turns to the disabled man and says, get up, take up your mat and go home. A hush falls over the crowd. As the man gets to his feet, it gets to his feet, they are filled with awe. And then suddenly they are all praising God as he begins to walk out of that house. Now it seems to me that in this story, we see a kind of chain reaction of different responses to Jesus. Firstly, we see some friends demonstrating faith towards him. Because of that, one man receives forgiveness from him. And because of that, some people are offended by him. But others are filled with awe and praise God because of him. So I want to just take a, a few minutes to look at each of these responses in turn this morning. And I just, as we go through this, see which you can identify and what, what is it that strikes you. Firstly, we see people demonstrating faith towards Jesus. Now, faith is not just going along in our minds, in our heads with certain ideas. Faith will always express itself in what we do, in our actions. And it seems to me that the actions of the friends in this story are quite cheeky. Uh, they demonstrate what the Jews might call chutzpah. Why don't you all say chutzpah? Yeah, just I saw this kind of mist of spray coming at the screen here as you did that. Now you've all cleared your throats. Let me explain what that is. We might call that a kind of audacious faith. They had a nerve doing what they did. It's like they weren't going to be put off by the fact that they couldn't get in. They would find some way through in order to do what they, uh, what they needed to do. And it seems to me that Jesus responds positively to that kind of audacious faith, to chutzpah. And we see that time and time again in the Gospels. Audacity with humility seems to get his attention. Uh, so like the woman who isn't put off by what could seem like a snub from Jesus, but tells him that even the dogs under the table get to eat the children's crumbs. Or the blind man in the crowd who keeps shouting over and over, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's shouting it and shouting it. And people say, shut up, will you shut up? And every time they do that, he just shouts all the louder. Audacious faith. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I could do with a bit more of that, a bit more chutzpah, not being maybe so easily discouraged or deflected from persevering in prayer. And, uh, I, you know, I just wonder if that's something that we could take on board from this story. 
I also hope that if I did what these guys did, I'd come back later and fix the roof. That's important too. Secondly, we see a paralyzed man receiving forgiveness. Jesus says to him, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. What was that about? Why not just move straight to healing? That was obviously what this man came for. I suppose the obvious explanation is that Jesus wanted to demonstrate his authority to forgive sins, and we'll come to that in a minute, but I don't think that was his priority here. I'm more inclined to think that what Jesus says to this man is exactly what he needs to hear. Jesus' priority is always to minister to the individual, to meet that person's need. And you know, at that time, it was widely believed that sickness and suffering were a result of, of sin. That now in a general sense, that's true. All suffering and sin is, is all suffering is a result of sin having entered the world as a result of men and women turning away from God and turning against him. But that that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're sick or suffering in some way, that it is a direct consequence of your sin or that God is punishing you in some way. And later on, we'll see Jesus correcting that thinking. But at this moment, what this guy needs is not a theology lesson. As he finds himself suddenly in the presence of Jesus, it's not hard to imagine that he feels a deep conviction of sin. Maybe he fears that he'll be shamed or turned away. We, we can't know for sure what he's thinking, but all we can say is that Jesus looks into this man's heart and he sees that before he can receive healing, he needs to know that his sins are forgiven. He needs to know that God is for him and not against him. Can you imagine his relief and his joy when he hears Jesus say, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. I just find that so moving. It's like when Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord seated on his throne and cries, woe to me. It's like he's completely undone in the presence of God. And then an angel takes a coal from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips saying, your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. Take heart, son. Your sons are forgiven. This, this is the very reason that Jesus came into the world. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Reconciliation is what happens when when two parties or two people that have been at odds with each other, that have been alienated from each other, come together and, and the relationship is healed. And, and, and some, very often that will, that will require sins to be forgiven. Listen, people turn to God for many reasons. And, you know, at a need, at a crisis, and in his kindness, and all these other wonderful adjectives that we were hearing about this morning. God meets us where we are, but our greatest need is to have our sins 
forgiven. Because it's, it's sin that's the root of all our troubles. It's sin that alienates us from God and keeps us in the dark. We need our sins to be forgiven so that our relationship with him is restored and so that the real work of healing can take place. Listen, today, do you know in your heart that your sins are forgiven? A lot of people struggle with this. They feel vaguely guilty and ashamed. You need to know that your sins are forgiven, that you're loved by God, that you're adopted as his child, that, that you're blameless in his sight, that God is for you and not against you. Take heart. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning, these words are for you. These words that Jesus is speaking, he is saying them to you. Take heart, son. Take heart, daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Third thing, the religious leaders, let's look at them. They're offended. I really wanted to say that they were furious because that starts with an F like all the other things. But the fury will come later um, when they plan to kill him. For now, all that we can see is that they are offended by what they consider to be an act of blasphemy. That Jesus is taking upon himself something that only God has the authority to do. So he provides them with the evidence that he is authorized to forgive sins. Effectively, he's saying to these religious leaders, listen, if, I'm, if I am a blasphemer like you think I am, then this man's sins will not have been forgiven. But if I am who I say I am, then now he will be able to walk, right? So I'll tell him to get up and then let's see what happens. But of course, because their minds are already made up, they are unable or unwilling to draw the obvious conclusion. Listen, it's easy for us to see them as the bad guys, but are we really so different? You know, we all tend to look for evidence that confirms what we already believe and dismiss anything that suggests to the contrary. The phrase, Unconscious bias is something that we hear quite a lot of these days. Just last week, the boss of a large accountancy firm had to resign after he told his employees that unconscious bias training was a load of, I can't say the word because this is a family um, viewing thing. But if I'm honest, when I read that report, I had some sympathy with the guy. And then, and then I thought, well, hang on. What if I have an unconscious bias about people who keep going on about unconscious bias? And, and I thought, you know, actually, how many of us can honestly say that we don't tend to stereotype people that we see as different to ourselves, that we see as the others? Maybe it could be Tory voters, people who who protest by digging tunnels, transgender activists, Brexit supporters, millennials, baby boomers. Each of us probably has one or two groups of people to whom we attribute certain attitudes and motives. We kind of stereotype them. And here's the problem. That will inevitably affect how we engage or interact with them or 
or more likely, we don't interact with them. And it, it's not that we can't disagree with other people or express a different point of view. Here's the problem. This God who reconciled us to himself in Christ has now committed to us the message of reconciliation. He is making his appeal through us. Now, how's that going to work if there's a whole bunch of people that we are biased against and have little or no interaction with? That's something I'm suggesting that you pick up at your life group meetings and talk about that this week. Finally, the crowd. What about them? It tells us that the crowd are filled with awe. It's like the enormous significance of what they have witnessed isn't lost on them. Maybe they haven't yet fully grasped who Jesus is, but they know that they are in the presence of majesty. And when we are in the presence of majesty, awe is the natural human response. It's like as created beings, we instinctively recognize when we encounter something or someone who is greater and more powerful than we are. We feel at the same time, and this is the great thing, we feel appropriately small and yet sublimely satisfied. Awe fills you up in a way that nothing else can. What it does is it shrinks your ego, but it expands your spirit. It shrinks our ego and expands our spirit. It is a foretaste of the future that God has planned for you. It can bring you to your knees in silence or cause you to burst forth in praise. So the crowd that day, they were thrilled by what Jesus did. They were filled with awe. What they didn't know was what it cost him to do what he did. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is called the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Sometimes people will ask, well, how could, how could Jesus forgive this guy because he hadn't been crucified yet? Listen, Jesus is the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. It, everything kind of leads forward to the cross and everything flows from the cross. It is at the center of God's plan of redemption. It's like from the very beginning, God knew that sin would enter the world and drive a wedge between him and us. And because of his great love for us, he made a way for our sins to be forgiven so that we could be reconciled to him and restored to our true identity. The whole plan of salvation is grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Christ, God took the sins of the human race upon himself, carrying it with him to the grave, so that he can say to you and me, take heart, son, take heart, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And so welcome us back into the liberating love and joy of his kingdom. Now, here's the thing. We all need this. You can't earn his forgiveness. You can't pay for his forgiveness. We can only 
receive it by faith through the grace and mercy of God. Maybe today is your time to receive God's forgiveness, to be welcomed home by your heavenly Father. If you want that, you can pray this short prayer with me. Listen, saying a prayer won't save you, but trusting in Jesus will. And this prayer is simply a way for you to begin to express that trust in Jesus. So let's just bow our heads and take a moment. And if you want to take this step this morning, then just make this prayer your own. Lord Jesus, thank you that you took my sins upon yourself on the cross so that they no longer count against me. Thank you that you've promise that whoever comes to you, you will never drive away. Lord, I come to you now and I bow to your authority as Lord. Thank you that because of you, because of what you have done, I'm forgiven. I'm blameless in God's sight. Now, please show me how to live this new life that you give me as part of your kingdom. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, thank you for listening this morning. And if you have prayed that prayer, then do please get in touch with us so that we can help just point you towards some next steps. Thank you. God bless you.